Hi, and welcome to uh, Red Reviews. This is our uh, 13th Red Reviews. Uh, so with my friend Justin Clark. <laughs> How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm good. Good, good, good. Um, 13. It's pretty amazing. Um, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'll share a little factoid. There are many common sort of historical examples of why people think of 13 as an unlucky number. But the one that is the, the but the one that has the most interest to me is the one that's related to the Knights Templar. So when the Knights Templar, who were the sort of elite group of soldiers during the Crusades, when they were rounded up by the Pope and executed, they were executed on Friday the 13th in oh, wow. 1307. So the thirteenth, ah. the Friday the thirteenth concept comes from the execution of the Templars. That's interesting. Um, in thirteen oh seven, yeah. So it's kind of a little bit grues- a gruesome thing, <laughs> but I think this actual episode will come out in October, so it'll work. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Yeah. That's right. So yeah, yeah. I I mean, I guess October is like on Friday, right? Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. As of yeah, with our recording, yeah, today's the twenty eighth, so of September. So yeah. we'll do yeah. So, but yeah, so the the Templars they were executed on on a Friday, and uh, the thirteenth. So that's that's where that comes from. Well, it was bad luck for them. So I guess it <laughs> yeah, sense. it was bad luck for them, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, although what beyond their own military prowess and sort of religious. Convictions. The other thing that Templars were 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 more known for was their banking system. Okay, um, they had a very elaborate banking system, um, a very early form of finance that, that kind of had an influence throughout. Interesting. Europe, into the later Middle Ages, into the Renaissance. So, yeah, just to tie it into talking about you know, <laughs> right? capitalism and and all that. So tonight is. I mean, all these tend to be pretty special, but tonight's a very special episode. It's part of the reason I'm wearing my red shirt today, um, is tonight we're going to be talking about the Communist Manifesto. Um, cool. And, you know, it's, I think even an hour of us sitting here chatting about the Manifesto, we'll not do it a justice. We'll try our best. But, you know, the Communist <laughs> Manifesto, written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in 1848, at the height of the wave of revolutions that was happening in Europe in the 1840s um, is easily one of the most important books in human history. And and arguably it's probably maybe next to Charles Darwin's on the origin of species, the most important book of the 19th century. Um, And probably the most important book of modern times besides origin. And this is a book that millions, if not billions have read, or at least to a certain extent quoted or understood. Yeah. Um, it was written as a text for the emerging organization called the Communist League, um, which grew out of an earlier organization. Um, and to learn a little bit more about sort of the origins of the friendship between Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and then their sort of crafting of the ideas of the manifesto and then writing the manifesto itself, I highly recommend people check out the movie, The Young Karl Marx, um, by Raoul Peck. It came out a few years ago. It's excellent. Um, you know, some stuff is dramatized for effect, but the big picture, it gets quite right. And, and about this intellectual partnership that starts between really two important figures of modern history, you know, they're sort of the Lenin and McCartney of, um, no pun intended, they're sort of the Lenin and McCartney of political philosophy. And so 
why does the Communist Manifesto matter? I mean, and why does it still matter today? I think it matters today because not only does it provide a lot of the main overarching themes and ideas of Marxism generally, but it also provides um, uh, us, it provides to us a framework of tactics, things that we can use practically to um, enact political change. And so the version that I've, I've read recently is in this compendium Oh wow! Uh, called Karl Marx, The Political Writings, that was released by Verso, I think last year or the year before. This book is actually a collection of three books that Verso put out in succession, maybe a decade or a half ago, of all of his major political writings. So this has a lot of his historical work, um, like the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, which, which we can always talk about in the future, or Critique of the Grotha Program, which we'll do next year. Cool. Um, uh, the Civil War in France, and obviously the Communist Manifesto. So wow. the, the Manifesto um, was published in multiple languages, um, and so it was originally written in German, um, but it was eventually subsequently published in French, English, and then obviously in almost any global language today. Right, yeah. Um, and it has some of the most common and influential phrases that people use when they think about Marxism or, or left politics generally, like a specter haunting Europe. Um, workers have nothing to lose but their chains. Right. You yeah. know, workers of the world unite. We have a world to win. There's a lot of great phrasing in the book, which is in the pamphlet, which is really important. And so I recommend for listeners, if you've never actually read the manifesto, I highly encourage you to, to, to read it. It, d- it doesn't take very long. It's like 40 pages. It's very, it's very easy to read. Yeah. I and think you can always look, the yeah. audio, the audio version is like super short. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. Um, but they pack a lot into that book, but I think, you know, what we'll do is we'll kind of, this is a text where I want to kind of go through more specifically and highlight specific passages and then we can discuss them. Sometimes with books, we tend to do sort of a big picture with the manifesto. And then the next time we'll be doing State Revolution by Lenin, I want to go through and and do specific sections of the text and kind of talk about them. Sure. Um, So let's, I mean, let's start with that, you know, one of the most iconic phrases because the book starts with this. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism, All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exercise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Menernich and Guizot, French radicals and the German police spies. And so they're setting this up, right? And remember the context in which this is written. So there are waves of, of protests and possible revolutions happening throughout Europe in the 1840s. This is written as essentially a, a party program slash, you know, sort of philosophical statement. Right. by the Communist League, and they are anticipating a revolution. Sadly, that revolution never really came, but I think the specter that haunts Europe is, in my opinion, now a specter that haunts the world. Um, and and yeah. the reason it now haunts the world is because of the 20th century expansion of the notion of communism, whether it be the former Soviet Union, obviously you no know, China, but like there was a point by 1949 where a fifth of the entire world's population lived under communism. And so, you know, I think 
it's important to understand that when they talk about that specter haunting Europe, it's, it's quite important. The second thing I want to note is just the actual use of the word specter. So what does that mean? It's a ghost, basically, or right, a spirit. Right. So this is the, the sort of ghost, sort of uh, uh, horror imagery is actually a through line through a lot of Marx's works. It's something that comes up in, ca in Capital Volume 1, which he wrote 20 years later, or publishes about 20 years later, where he talks about how capitalists are bloodsuckers. And vampire and vampire like right. they keep sucking out the surplus labor. You know, this he uses these kinds of of haunting imagery to get a sense of what's going on. Um, and so I, I really like that that what's going on with Marx and Engels in the manifesto is not just a really clear understanding of what their point of view is, but also the language is so vivid, which is is quite fun to read. Right, right. But yeah, so. That's kind of the setup. And then um, the first chapter is called Bourgeois and Proletarians. Now, what what do these terms mean, right? So Bourgeois and Proletarians, you have two sides of the conflict. Today, we would basically call them the working class, which would be the Proletarians. And, and the capitalist class, yeah. the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois. This section starts with... One of probably the most important sentences of this book and one of the most important sentences of political philosophy, period, because it sets up what Marx and Engels are articulating in something we've discussed before, which is historical materialism and, and, and how, you know, societies are shaped by material conditions and conflicts within them. Right. So they say the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, mm -hmm. stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. So this is, again, what makes this section important, is when we think of society the sort of liberal conception of history is that we are varieties of different individuals working things out within society and that we gradually progress over time. That's, that's the sort of traditional liberal or what they used to call the Whig view of history. Right. Now Marxism rejects that and says, actually, no, a lot of times progress is, happens directly as a result of these revolutionary breaks and upheavals that happen directly as a result between the contradictions inherent within the society itself. Yeah. And this gets back to what we talked about when we, when we talked about Engels's socialism, utopian and scientific, when we were talking about Hegel, right. where, you know, in order for there to be an oppressor, there has to be an oppressed. Those two go hand in hand. Yeah. And no matter how you change the relations within that given system, there will always be those two camps. They're yin and yang, and they contradict each other, and they lead to conflicts. How do we get out of those conflicts? By resolving the Constitution. Sorry, by resolving the contradiction. Right, right. And, and, by, and what, how do we resolve the, Constitution, the, 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 the contradiction? We resolve it through evolution. And those revolutionary breaks are the ways that we do that. So that's really important. And this sets up the, the broader discussion of historical materialism. So they go through the different eras of human societies. So they go to sort of, the, you know, the more uh, prehistoric times in which things were often held in common. There were no oppressor-oppressed classes. 
people lived in common. Then you get into the sort of early civilizational period, whether it's the Egyptians, um, right. Sumerians, and so Where on. now you have a ruling class sort of thing. You have a ruling class because the development of surplus value. Um, and those surpluses are then controlled by an elite. And, um, and that elite is the owning class um, or the ruling class. And so, um, you know, so he talks about how, you know, they talk about how um, that in, in earlier times, the bourgeois were in, were in and of themselves the revolutionary subject. So if you think about um, the early um, modern period where we're getting out of feudalism and we're getting into the age of the Enlightenment, right? So all of these revolutions that happen, whether it's the United States in 1776, France in 1789, or even a century before that with the glorious revolution of 1688 in England um, with the restoration of the monarchy, uh, there's these bourgeois revolutions. They're not capitalist in the sense that they, these people don't necessarily own capital, but there's the beginnings of that. But the right, bourgeois right. revolutions are, are, are revolutionary in that they represent a clear and deliberate break with the past, which was feudalism. And so Marx and Engels are very influenced by Hegel's study of history, the philosophy of history, the development of stages of history, and that they evolve over time. The difference between them and Hegel is that Hegel sort of saw it as the manifestations of spirit. So it was idealism, whereas Marx and Engels are materialists. So these right. phases of society are determined by material production. And so in feudal society, you have limited handicrafts, small bourgeois, uh, you know, petty bourgeois shopkeepers and so on. That gets into the capitalist era of mass production and distribution that Marx and Engels would then experience and understand in the mid 19th century. So again, this kind of ties into this notion of what is the big picture, right? That, that society is determined by class conflicts and that these class conflicts are the heart of political struggle and political understanding. And that without that understanding of class struggle, you really don't have a thorough understanding of political philosophy. And that's kind of the main issue with um, not having that is that when you have a view of the world, like I said, the sort of liberal view where right. it's about sort of ideals and, and fighting for these sort of abstract ideals, like, you know, truth, democracy, freedom, and this, that, and the other, when they're untethered from material conditions, it kind of throws everything apart. So that's where we can kind of stop real quick. But the other thing I think that's important here to think about is the fact that, um, Marx and Engels actually have a particularly – people think of them as just hating on capitalism, right? Which some of that's true. But the bigger component is that they talk about all of the things that are quite good about the capitalist system and that it sort of upends some of these old feudal arrangements that have held people back. Right. And capitalism itself creates the conditions by which we can build a socialist world. Um so, for example, in the manifesto, they write, The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which reactionists so much admire, found its fitting complement in, in, in the most slothful indolence. It has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about, 
And this is where they're talking about capitalism. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expositions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. Um, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was... On the contrary, the first condition of existence of all, for all earlier industrial classes, constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all other ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new form ones become antiquated before they can ossify. Here's a, and this is another really important phrase. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. So there's a lot to unpack there. But that's an important point, which is that they're talking about how you know, capitalism has been able to create this yeah. incredible amount of wealth and production and commodities and has, in some respects, improved a lot of human life, right? But at the same time, what does it also do? And this talks about the interrelationships. We're getting back into sort of dialectical right. thinking. When one thing happens that might be good, there's probably something that's bad, and those interact with each other, and they have to. So what's the bad thing about capitalism? It's the destruction of traditions. It's the tr destruction of traditional modes of um, existence, a family relations start to break down. Social relations start to break down. Uh, traditions, uh, religions start to ossify and, and are either swept away or evolve based on the modes of production. Yeah. They're, but put, they're brought into the system in a sense, right? Like, yes, yes. And, and, um, and so, you know, all that solid melts in the air, all that sacred profane, and at last, man faced with the consequences has to understand his lowly existence because in previous epochs though the understanding of being working class the understanding of alienation within the system of life that existed pre-capitalism was very veiled and it was veiled by different things usually right. religion right so it was usually veiled by the sort of well if i toil in the field all day then i'll get my just rewards from from god or whatever right well right, capitalism right. does away with that because capitalism doesn't give a shit about the family it doesn't care <laughs> about religion it doesn't care about tradition it doesn't care about customs um, and mo and social modes it doesn't care about any of that yeah. it will upend all of that in the service of 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 constant development and revolutionizing the modes of production. So that's, I think, really important to understand about why capitalism creates so much wealth and some prosperity for some people, but at the same time, it also can bring untold misery and uh, social upheaval. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's because it, it, it will incorporate what it can't and then destroy what it what it can't incorporate <laughs> yeah or it will incorporate what it can and then destroy anything else <clears throat> yeah pretty much and so marx and engels see this as awful obviously but they also see it as an opportunity where wherein all of these changes can be you know ultimately um create contradictions within the system 
And so this is where you get into the, the discussion of the contradictions within the capitalist system itself and how over time those will come to a head. And um, so like when they say, um, so they say like the productive forces at the disposal of society no, no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they have become too powerful for these conditions by which they are fettered. And so soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. So the very, you know, the very conditions with which the bourgeois control society ultimately can undermine society and the bourgeois with it. You know, this is where you get the sort of the phrase of capitalism has its own grave diggers. Right. Right. And which um, I can't remember if that is actually in the manifesto or not, but at some point uh, they say something along, along those lines. The other thing that's really important too is that one of the, one of the more uncharitable readings of the manifesto is that um, it has a more traditional sort of patriarchal view of women. Right. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it may have been in Marx. I mean, Marx was more socially conservative than Engels was. But in Engels's case, Engels thought way more clearly about r women and 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 the issue of gender, you know, in light years beyond many people writing in his day, especially men. And one of the things they know is that they say um, the less is uh, the less the skill and exertion and st of strength implied in manual labor. In other words, the more modern industry becomes developed, the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All instruments of labor more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex. No sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash that he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So this is where we're getting into the idea of wage labor. In previous epochs, people either lived on the land that they um, they tilled, right? So like in the feudal times, in, feudal, in the feudal era, you would have, you know, serfs that would live on a plot of land and you'd have the lords and the lords would exact a specific amount of crop from them that the rest right. was theirs. Yeah. And so people often make the argument and sort of as a, and you'll see this within some extreme circles that uh, the Middle Ages was better because people worked less, which I guess is technically true, but people also died of like very preventable diseases yeah. and problems with their teeth more. So it's like, it's a wash, like, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, but that's a very important point that people tended to tend to work more under capitalism. Like that's right. Right. right? Because it, because it takes more and more and more to extract surplus value over time. You know, one of the key hallmarks of Marxism is the decline of, of the decline and fall of profit over time, which is something they don't go too much in in the manifesto, but it's developed more concretely in capital um, by Marx. So in terms of gender roles, I think this is really important, right? So look, when they're talking about how these gender distinctions are, are stripped away and with it, the fact that, um, that these uh, traditional relations are also stripped away. So any semblances of norms are ripped away. So if you think about a con what's a concrete example in our own time is the development of the two income family. Mm -hmm. So if you look at post-World War II in the United States, especially women became a more dominant part of the workforce as they did 
one thing that we saw as a corollary of that is that they is that the work the the sort of capitalist class the bourgeois realized that oh hey if both men and women are working we can pay them women less right. than the men and then we can pay them both less overall yeah and, and then, so and then catch them back on the other end with uh, mortgages <laughs> mortgages and rents and the yeah. pawnbroker etc yeah so Instead of this is what they're really hinting at here is something that we hear all the time, which is that capitalism and sort of traditional moral values go hand in hand. This is something you'll hear with conservatives a lot. And in reality, that's not the case at all. Capitalism is an inherent is inherently anti-moral. It's like anti-family. It's anti-tradition. It's anti-morals. It's it's not it's not interested in a lot of the traditional things of life that people are interested in, which is part of the reason why you see today within the conservative movement, especially people who consider themselves like the quote unquote populist right mm. or the sort of Trump base is that notice that they talk when they talk about economics, they often sound like liberals or they sound like progressives where they talk about how we should have a high income tax. We should have public investments, this and that and the other. Well, they're doing that because they recognize that capitalism itself destroys tradition. It destroys moral bounds. And right. a lot of conservatives understood this, um, you know, decades ago and are sort of re- now getting this again after the sort of age of neoliberalism. Um, yeah. So that, so that's kind of the gist of it. So yeah, you got the bourgeoisie, you got the proletariat. And in this system, they are set up for conflict and eventually the conflict breaks and the way it breaks is through a revolutionary break with that system. Right. And Marx and Engels really did genuinely believe that was going to happen. Um, unfortunately it didn't. And we're still living in an era in which revolution seems impossible. Um, and you know, or some, you know, uh, or the, uh, the sort of Marxist cultural critic, Christopher Lash talked about the idea of, well, is revolution actually obsolete? His answer is no, but <laughs> he sort of talks about the point that, revolutions generally are no longer seen as the way that they're supposed to be. They're sort of seen as two ways and that revolutions really need to matter in the sense that revolutions can't just be either changes in culture. Like like people call it like the, like the, the, the women's revolution or like the LGBTQ revolution. Those are great. And like, I'm not trying to discount how important those are, but like, revolutions within Marxism mean a very specific thing, which is the change of mode of production of society. Like if you don't have a change of that, then you really, you, you don't have a revolution in the strictest sense of the word. You, you, re, you know, you have a reform or you have a metaphorical sense of revolution, right. but revolution is about changing the mode of production. And so how do we get there? And the, the way that we start thinking about getting there is, you know, the big important point in chapter two, which is proletarians and communists, which is the chapter two, the most important point of this chapter is discussing the distinguishing feature of communism is not the yeah. abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. So in this sense, the theory of communists must be summed up in a single sentence of abolition of private property. Okay. So this is the, so how do we how do we change into a society that is post-capitalist? Will we abolish private property? Now, yeah. interestingly enough, Marx and Engels both anticipate neckbearded chuds on the internet who talk about how, 
well, does that mean you're going to take my shit? Or like, you're going to come in and rip the TV what off my What about my, my wall? toothbrush? What about my toothbrush? <laughs> so they spend, they make great pains in the book, in the Communist Manifesto, to make a point of saying that actually, um, that private property and personal property are two different things. Yeah. So personal property is like your stuff, right? It's my microphone. It's my computer. It's, it's my book. Those are personal property. Communism is not about taking your personal shit. If anything, it's about giving you more personal shit, um, like in the form of like healthcare and food and clothing and housing, right? But yeah. what it is about is it's about destroying the private property relations. So in capitalism, the, the mode of production is owned privately, meaning that it is owned by a small amount of people who then receive the majority of the surplus value, if not all of it, for themselves. And that is not distributed to society. Yeah. And so how do we change our society? We, dis- we change it by abolishing the private property relation and replacing it with public property. It's replacing it with Essentially, the, yeah. Yeah, the democratic ownership of the means of production. It's yeah. about moving away from a very small amount of people owning stuff to everyone owning everything. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's, this it's the, my favorite part of, of, of all of it. <laughs> yes. It's about everyone owning everything. Right. So yeah. that's the difference. And so um, let me see if they have a further passage, but basically they say like to, um, to sum this up, they say property in its present form is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. That's true. Mm-hmm. Capital is a collective product, and only by the united action of many members, nay, in the last resort, only by the united action of all members of society, can it be set in motion. So capital, in its in and of itself, is not set in motion by just the capitalists. It's right. set in motion by the workers, right? You know, this is where you get the workers run the world, or workers make the world run, so workers should run the world, right? Yeah. This is an important point. So it says capital is therefore not a personal, it is a social power. When therefore capital is converted into common property, into the property of all members of society, personal property is not thereby transformed into social property. It is only the social character of the property that is changed. It loses its class character. So again, summing up what we were talking about is it's the moving away of some people owning most of everything to everyone owning everything. And it's ridding society of the class distinction. While equality, like the notion of inequality was important to Marx and to Marxism generally, the more important point was freedom. Right. And, and so under a society, even if you lived in a society where things were generally equal, do you have a lot of freedom? Sometimes no. Right. So the, 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 that equality should be in the service of enhancing human freedom, which is that in the ability to make sure you get the health care you need, making sure you do have clothes on your back, making sure you do have food in your belly, yeah. making sure that your kids have an education, making sure that our environment isn't going up in a ball of flames, right? And so private property is the problem, not personal property, but private property. So that's really the most important point of chapter two. Yeah, it's it's uh, to even just extrapolate a little bit more, uh, it's not your house. It's owning multiple houses and withhold, you know, making a profit off of them. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And in fact, they have a quote by that on the next page where they say, communism deprives no man of the power to appropriate the products of society. 
All that it does is to deprive him of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriation. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with owning stuff. There's just something wrong in expropriating the surplus labor of others to appropriate stuff. That's the problem. And um, let's see. Oh, in this chapter, there's also their sort of party platform. Oh, these nice. are kind of interesting. <laughs> um, a lot of these are things that have become commonplace, even in the United States. Um, but they're things that I think they're pretty revolutionary regardless. So they say, um, abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. That one we still haven't gotten to yet. Not even close. <laughs> I mean, some some pa- some places do, like Cuba does, um, but, oh, but other places. Berlin just yeah. had... 200,000 yep. homes uh, nationalized, right. appropriated by the people <laughs> from yeah, massive some, rental companies. Right. And some societies have this in some forms. Like in the UK, there's council housing. Right, right. Um, which is like that. Yeah, there's uh, social housing in various places. Like say, Yeah. A heavy progressive or graduated income tax. That's pretty much something every industrialized society has. Yeah. Um, the income tax... Yeah. And this is something where right-wing libertarians will come up and say, you know who supported the, the, the progressive income tax? Karl Marx. And they'll like, oh, he's like the boogeyman. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that one's important. Socialism. <laughs> um, socialism, yeah. Abolition of all right of inheritance. This is something that, you know, we don't have in the United States um, because essentially in the United States we have is called the estate tax, which has been dubbed the death tax. Um, by pollsters right, to make yeah. it seem bad, even though the mass majority of people who are against the quote unquote death tax don't know what the fuck it is and don't actually benefit from it because most people who have to pay the estate tax are people who are truly obscenely wealthy. Like we're talking multimillionaires or billionaires, right? So, um, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. So let's, so let's talk about that one for a minute. So that one on the, on the surface sounds really bad. But what that basically means is that um, by confiscating the property, the private property yeah. of all immigrants and rebels, what you're doing is you're making the point of we're going to avoid the problem of capital flight so that people can move money out of a society. And also um, – and so – and it's not immigrants. No. Like people who come to a society. It's emigrants, people who are leaving. Yeah. And, and so, I think uh, for – rhetorical purposes it's important to point out the again the difference between personal property and private property exactly they're not taking the blanket from an immigrant who came to uh north america because of uh dire circumstances they are talking about you know cuban landowners (laughs) yes yes right right exactly and they who just want their slaves back yeah um uh centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Now this one in most societies is sort of true. So like in the United States, we have, we do have a centralized currency Mm -hmm. in Europe. They do England, Russia, centralized banking, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about Stephanie Kelton's book, the the deficit myth. Um, Check out that episode if you haven't. Um, also like subscribe and, and uh, support Patreon um, <laughs> and all that stuff <laughs> and all that good stuff. Um, but that's something like, uh, and China does more where they have even more banking under state control. Right. So, 
That's something that is there. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with the common plan. Again, this is something that is very common in, in revolutionary societies, whether it be the well-known restorative agriculture of Cuba, obviously the collectivization efforts in the Soviet Union and so forth. So that is something that has also happened. Um, uh, in terms of agriculture and then in terms of factories, that's certainly the case. Um, we talked about, I think last time about David Harvey spoke, China has what are called state owned enterprises or right. SOEs. Yugoslavia had this whole setup. And so obviously so did the Soviet Union. Um, equal liability to all of all to labor establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. So this is to resolve the, re the industrial reserve army problem. One of the things that capitalism does is it pretty much makes huge amounts of people unemployed. And so you would have national programs or, you know, common programs that would put people back to work and help people. And the other thing too, is that it talks about the equal liability to all labor. So like, it's important that people equally participate in society. Right. So like in communism, like in our future communist society, like, you know, there are going to be days where maybe you're going to be, you know, helping with some stuff in the office for a few hours. And then you're going to go help in a garden for a couple hours. Right. And then you're going to chill for the rest of the day or, you know, like it's. Yeah. Like you'll you know, work three or four hours a day. <laughs> and you'll do different tasks, yeah. different days of the week. That's right. And everything will be kind of distributed out. Whereas now everything is kind of split. Yeah. Um, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. This is an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, and I think part of this is going back to thinking, um, especially about the United States at the time this book was written in the 1840s. So, you know, a lot of people in Europe moved to the United States because the United States had all of this available land to them. Mm -hmm. We'll say, we'll table the issue about why they had that available <laughs> land. Right. But for the, for all purposes of our discussion, they had this available land to them, right? Now, I've heard a completely opposite thesis um, by the biologist E.O. Wilson, who came up with this idea he calls half-Earth, which okay. we I think we talked a little bit about when we talked about Kim Stanley Robinson's book. And in the very first episode, um, about the idea of if we have more and more people live in cities and we leave more and more of the countryside to nature, that it will help heal some of the problems of climate change. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the opposite solution. But it's interesting in that, you know, I mean, the other thing, too, is that they're also just acknowledging that industrial urban centers are where all the capital is. So right. the poverty is often in the rural areas. If it's divided more evenly, then there will be less poverty in certain areas of the country yeah, that, in society. And then the one is uh, the number 10 is free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, combination of education with industrial production, etc. This one has been, at least in the industrial world, largely achieved. Yeah. Um, you know, and the goal is to expand that, make that even more important. Um, so, and the most important part of this is the end of the chapter, which is a phrase that's really important, which is that the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. So when people talk about how Marxism is against like individuality and he doesn't care about individuals, it's all collectives, like that's not true. It's about an, a relationship between who you are as an individual and your own individuality and your own pursuits and your own talents and your own joys 
and your own aspirations and the overall joys and aspirations and, and goals of a society and how those interact with one another. And that they don't have, and that in capitalism, those are often antithetical to one another. And in communism, they can be complementary to one another. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, uh, obviously, <laughs> there was obviously a break at some point between Marx and the anarchists. But this, yes. this is the stuff where, like, this is the same thing as anarchists believe. Like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, much of this is exactly identical to uh, anarchist writing. The freedom yes. of every person is the freedom of, of all people. Right. You can't right. have, you, ca- you cannot have some people who are free and, and some people who are not free because then nobody is truly free. Exactly. Exactly. So there's two more chapters. We'll try to get through this as, as quickly as we can, at least in the most important components. And so the next one is like about socialist and communist literature. So we talk, they talk about the different types of socialism, like reactionary socialism, like the socialism of the feudal era. Um, and then like Christian socialism. And they have this phrase, which I figured we'll bring up because of the sort of the nature of what this podcast is. <laughs> right. Which is that Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat, which I think is quite good. So th- these sort of earlier proto-socialisms are all rooted in sort of the guilt of the wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where that comes from. Then you have petty bourgeois socialism, which is about, you know, uh, you have a, what are petty bourgeois, like your small business owners. Yeah, yeah. So people who would have some progressive leanings based on their own business interests. Um, and then you have like German or true socialism, you know, kind of based in the literati. Um, you have bourgeois socialism uh, uh, where he critiques Proudhon, the, the, the sort of anarchist philosopher, um, where he said, where they say the socialist bourgeois want all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessary resulting therefrom. So what they're saying there is that like a lot of the sort of petty or the sort of conservative or bourgeois socialists, they want to have the sort of free development of each for the free development of all, but they're not willing to go through the revolutionary. They're not willing to, to equate or they're not willing to make good with the fact that that's going to require Mm. a revolutionary break with the previous society. It's going to require a certain level of force. And I think that's kind of the, the, the difference there. Um, they talk about utopian socialism, which we've talked about with angles. So we'll kind of skip that a little bit. Um, and then we'll kind of get to the last chapter, which is literally only about a page and a half, but it's really important because this is the pragmatic section of the book. (laughs) Um, um, but overall, the one thing they say is despite all of the issues we have with all of these different types of socialisms, the fact that they exist and the fact that people learn something from them is good. So like what they say at the end of the chapter is, but these socialist and communist publications contain also a critical element. They attack every principle of existing society. Hence, they are full of the most valuable materials for the enlightenment of the working class. So again, this is where you see more of this sort of conciliatory nature of Marxism, where we're being pragmatic. And, you know, however you get to the notion of classless society is a good thing, but we would really like for you to be Marxists. Um, you know, <laughs> right. um, if you don't end up being that, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but like, we'd really like for you to be Marxist. But if you're not, at least you're getting stuff 
that is radicalizing you, yeah. that is making you critical of capitalism and so on. The last chapter is the position of the communists in relation to the various existing opposition parties. This chapter is so important to understanding what's going on today. So there are numerous misreads of this part of the, of the communist manifesto. Some have the more charitable reading, which is the more sort of reformist Marxism of say Kautsky and the second international. Um, and then you have like the more sort of radical break um, Lenin's types who sort of make a point of saying that like some alliances are good, but in general, some are going to undermine your very project. Mm -hmm. But let's see what they actually say. Okay. So the communists fight for the attainment of the immediate aims for the enforcement of the momentary interests of the working class. But in the movement of the present, they also represent and take care of the future of that movement. So Basically, they talk about how in certain materials conditions, you're going to do different things yeah. based on what you can do in the immediate. Right? right. And this goes back to something we will talk about next year when we read Rosa Luxemburg's Reform and Revolution. Cool. Cool. Uh, Reform and Revolution. Luxembourg is, I think, of all of the major Marxists, probably the one you're going to like the most. Yeah, I already know um, some of her stuff. Mainly and, just and, because uh, her like. view... Uh, you know, because an, an anarchist of, of all of the Marxists, Rosa Luxemburg is probably the one that anarchists will like the best because she's probably the closest to you um, in that she sort of believes that the way in which you build working class uh, movements is through a grand sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, broad people powered movement that develops into councilism and so on. Whereas the Leninist model, which um, I believe in is more of a developing revolutionary vanguard party, which helps lead the working class towards revolution. Right. Um, those are kind of the differences. And in fact, there's an essay in the reformer revolution book that we'll review where she kind of critiques Leninism and compares it to her own point of view. It's great reading. Um, and uh, I think the best way maybe to describe Lenin and Luxembourg is that they were like, Maybe not frenemies. They were friendly and friends for sure and like sort of comrades, but they had very deep theoretical differences. Um, but basically, like they talk right. about how like in France, the communists allied themselves with the social democrats against the conservative and radical bourgeoisie. In Switzerland, they support the radicals with losing sight of the, without losing sight of the fact that this party consists of antagonistic elements. In Poland, they support the party that insists on the agrarian revolution. In Germany, they fight with the bourgeoisie whenever it acts in a revolutionary way. So, um, what you know, but they never cease for a single instant talking about communists. To instill into the working class the clearest possible recognition of the hostile antagonism between bourgeoisie and proletariat. Um, so I think that's really important. And then kind of following, finishing up this concept, in short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. With that in mind, there are going to be some times where you're going to make short-term alliances for sort of long-term gains, right? Right. So like, for example, you know, sort of, they're calling for left unity, but in service of revolutionary ends, which I think is quite important. Yeah. Um, like, even if we have deep theoretical differences, which, you know, a lot of people do, I, I imagine you and I both do, um, is that at the end of the day, when you're fighting the bourgeois itself, there's unity, there, there's, a, there's a relevance and a power in unity and an importance in unity yeah. that matters. Um, and so... That's really 
really important to kind of take away from the manifesto. Now, I think as time went on, Marx and Engels became more radical on this point, um, which is something we'll talk a little bit more when we talk about um, state revolution with Lenin. But I will end with one of the most influential phrases of the book and probably one of the most influential phrases ever, which is, um, let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite, or workers of the world unite, yeah. if you want to kind of degender it. Um, this is so important. You know, we have nothing to lose but our chains. It's the call to, to action. Yeah. yeah. It's the call to action. It's the call to arms, right? Yeah. The world to win, which is a phrase I, I really quite like. Grace Blakely, who's a Marxist economist in England, her podcast is called A World to Win. Cool. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that in a nutshell – is the Communist Manifesto, one of the most important books ever written, um, and one of the most influential pieces of political philosophy ever written. Maybe the most single and most important piece of political philosophy ever written. Yeah, potentially. Eh? That's <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, sort of the big takeaways, understand the, the you know, the, the antagonistic class theory of history, historical materialism, understanding that historical epochs are dependent upon class struggles. They, they depend on class struggles. That um, the real goal is the abolition of private property and, yep. and the free development of each is the free development of all. And that communists will often work with others who are not quite like them in the service of fighting for revolutionary movements around the world. And and then, you know, fighting out over those details later. And somebody just needs to remind everybody on Twitter that that's how this goes. We all have to yeah. be on the same side <laughs> until... And this is overthrown. <laughs> exactly. And then we can hash out those differences. Right? Yeah. And that's not to say that Marx did not have, you know, real disagreements with people. I mean, he kicked Bakunin out of the, the yeah. international for Christ's sake. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not, it's not that that's not the case, but the reason that I'm a Marxist and why I'm not um, an anarchist is because Marxism for me, at least and, you know, maybe you can, you know, I think we're, we're going to do a long reform discussion of anarchism when we talk about Kropotkin and sure, critiques yeah. of Kropotkin from Marx and Engels and Lenin next year. Um, see, we got so much good content coming from <laughs> Yes, I've got so too. much. I've, we've got so much shit planned for you. You're not going to know what you do with it. But, um, but anyway, is that the reason that I'm a Marxist is it kind of goes back to what we talked about with Engels, is that it's laying things upon an historical and scientific foundation. Right. That that it's providing a theoretical framework, that it's not sort of tied to these sort of loose kind of you know brotherhood of man bullshit. It's there's something real to it, right, and tangible to it. And that's not to say that anarchism doesn't have that. But but that's fair. you know, for me, but for me at least, you new know, Marxism is is if you look at working class revolution and working class movements that largely succeed, they are either explicitly Marxist or they are influenced by Marxists. So it's important that like, even if you're not a Marxist to read Marxist theory, because there's a lot in it that you will like and a lot of it that you will mm -hmm. take away from, especially when we get to talking about Lenin and talking about the withering away of the state and, 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 and those notions I think are really are really um, uh, 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 apropos for anarchists, but you know, um, 
you know, the, the manifesto is uh, very important, as we've discussed, and I'm really happy to have shared my little sort of interpretation or view of the, the Communist Manifesto. Every time I go back to it, because it's something, it's a kind of text that you don't want to read once. It's one that you're going to want to go to back again right. and again and again and sort of pick things out of and see new insights. And because there's something, you'll always find something out of it. Um, like any great works of political philosophy or theory, you're going to get something new out of it every time you go back to it. Um, but the manifesto especially, and it's written in such a clear style and polemical style that's really fun to read. Um, and yeah, I mean, and then I would say, you know, we, we skipped a lot about them basically shit talking other versions of socialism. So go back and read those sections to get a sense of what that is, <laughs> yeah. but they kind of do that. Um, but yeah, so that's the communist manifesto. Perfect. I, I, I don't really have anything to add at this point, but, uh, I, I, I did read the communist manifesto a while back. I really enjoyed it. I've listened to the auto audiobook. It's super short. It's, uh, it's one of these things that, like you say, like it, it's really informative. It can really help you, uh, get a grasp. If you, if you're an anarchist, it marks and anarchism are, ha are like opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's important to it's, know what's on the other side of that coin. <laughs> it's two different roads getting you to the same destination. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of the way that I describe it. Um, so, and we don't disagree on the ends. We just kind of disagree on the means yeah. and we kind of disagree on the way we get there. Um, yeah. and it's important to have those discussions. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. So what are we covering next time? Next time we are covering state revolution by Lenin. Nice. I'm very excited because, um, the, while we talked about how this book was probably the most influential piece of political writing in the 19th century, Lenin's State and Revolution is probably the most important piece of political writing in the 20th century. Um, and so it is going to lay out Marxism and its theory of the state, which is something that like Marx never in his lifetime wrote a book on the state. He right. intended to. Um, in his multi-volume series of Capital, he, had he intended to develop develop and devote an entire volume of capital to the state and its relationship to capital. But he never got to it. He died. Right. So what Lenin does is he basically reads all of this stuff for us and kind of pulls from all of these different sources. Because the way we understand how Marx and Engels view the state is by reading all of these different sources right. and fragments and things here and there to get a sense of where they're at, especially the critique of the Gotha program, which we'll cover next year too, which is very important. Um, and, uh, he'll come up with his theory of revolutionary change, um, which uh, results in sort of the development of that vanguard party who right. seizes power with the workers and then the development of a society in which you, like we discussed in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Engels, that withering away of the state, where you develop a society to a point where the state, as it's currently designed, no longer exists right. and it becomes um, instead of the, the governance of people, it becomes the administration of things in, in Engels's phrase. So yeah, we'll cover that next time. And then the next session after that will be uh, um, a history of the Ref Russian revolution um, because state revolution is actually an unfinished book. Um, <laughs> uh, he wrote most of it in the spring and into the summer of 1917 and then he got a little busy, and I kind of wonder why. Um, and, <laughs> and who uh, knows? He just and he actually, yeah, 
he would party and, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. uh, but, um, but yeah, so he eventually, um, writes a little postscript to the book where he says, um, it's a lot more fun to carry out a revolution than to write about one, um, or something to that effect. It's not, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically what he says. Right. Um, and so, um, he will later on more articulate the value of the revolution in other writings, but. Um, but yeah, so we'll be covering a book called October, the story of the Russian revolution by China Mieville, um, which is a popular history of the Russian revolution written by a Marxist science fiction writer. Um, so which is kind of cool. Very um, cool. And so we'll do that. And then we'll be doing a couple other things, um, later on down the road. Uh, I think later this year, we're going to talk about China. We're going to read Mao. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff we're going to do next year and into the future. So I'm really excited because I want to be able to give your listeners, you know, a good thorough primer on all of the major sort of Marxist works that they can go back to as they're reading the manifesto or they're reading state revolution or they're reading Mao Very cool. or Rosa Luxemburg. So that's kind of where we're going. Awesome. So I guess the last step is where can people find you? Sure. So you can find me at justinclark.org. My blog's there. I haven't written up for my blog in a while, mainly just because I've been busy writing other work and just doing other things. Um, but I do have a new article coming out in the Truth Seeker magazine about the friendship between um, radical American socialist Eugene B. Debs and radical atheistic political order Robert Ingersoll. Um, that's also available on the Indiana Historical Bureau blog if you want to read it there. Um, and um, I also want tonight to discuss um, that we recently, within the last few weeks, we really lost the titan of free thought um, in the death of Dr. Tom Flynn, um, okay. who worked for the Center for Inquiry. He was a good, he was an ch absolute champion of free thought and secularism and humanism, and um, is an Ingersoll, was an Ingersoll scholar in his own right, and was very kind to me when I started my research in Ingersoll. It was very helpful. And he sadly passed away, I think, at the age of 66. Um, and so, um, my condolences to him, my condolences to his family and his friends. And I dedicated my article on Debs and Ingersoll to him. So, um, we, we love you. We'll miss you, Tom. And we, I cannot help thank him enough for his contributions to, um, free thought. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I guess not cool, but very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and then you can follow me on social media at, um, uh, Justin Clark PH for public history. And, um, and then I, you know, I post book reviews there and, and all that kind of good stuff. And then, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, you know, we're getting more and more views all the time. We've getting some lovely comments. Um, and I'll say it for you again, you know, become a patron. Um, you know, Corey does an incredible amount of work on the show and, uh, you know, and it's, it's not easy. And the man's got to eat and his kid's got to eat. Okay. Yeah, that's right. He's got to feed his kids, man. I'm going to pull their hearts. <laughs> that's right. But like, it, don't it's, you want it's, my kids to eat? <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, you know, we're getting into winter time here. It's going to get cold, right? That's right. You're going to have heating bills, but he works really, really hard and he's creating really interesting content, not just my show, you know, to blow smoke up my own ass, <laughs> but, but, but to talk about the other really great work that he's doing, um, and, uh, so definitely follow him on Patreon. I think, is it, is it just mine of skeptical leftist on Patreon or is it your uh, name? It's patreon.com slash skeptical leftist. <laughs> All righty. Great, great, great. And so, yeah, definitely become a Patreon supporter. And if you can't do that, then 
definitely share our stuff out. Yeah. Um, you know, hit that like, hit the subscribe, share it out on Facebook, share it on social media. You know, um, I'm confident and, that if you like this, then somebody, you know, will like this. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 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 And I promise you that this is not a multi-level marketing scheme. That's right. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, my friend, my friend and comrade Cambria, she always says that there are only two types of MLMs that we like men, <laughs> uh, men loving men and Marxist Leninist Maoists. We don't like multi-level marketing. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah. um, and, uh, so yeah, so, uh, that's a long winded outro, but basically, yeah, support the show. I think Corey's doing really interesting stuff and I can't thank him enough for providing this wonderful platform for me to do something I really love, which is to share the history of ideas with people. Well, and I, I really appreciate, uh, your perspective and, uh, the amount of reading that you do for this show, <laughs> because I can't do that much reading. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, the rest of the year is going to be really exciting. You know, we're going to do Lenin. We're going to talk about the Russian Revolution. And then after that, we're going to take a little break and we're going to do a couple uh, smaller books. We're going to do this book, uh, Stolen by Grace Blakely, which we talked about earlier. This is a really great, this is going to be a really great book as a companion to our episode about David Harvey and neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Because this book kind of picks up where that book leaves off in terms of the sort of neoliberal hellscape that we live in. And then the other book we're going to do, um, before we get to Mao, is this book that I've been reading like furiously and I've been like procrastinating on reading stuff for the actual show. But I guess this is going to be for the show too. <laughs> is a book called The Minimal Self by Christopher Lash. Um, oh, Christopher Lash is, is uh, best known for his book, The Cultural Narcissism, which has been really big over the last few years because of Trump, but people really don't understand what Lash is trying to get at. Um, Christopher Lash is somebody who is painted as being like a, a neoconservative, but that's not true at all. He was a socialist and a Marxist. Okay. And, but he had a very unique perspective on where we're at in the moment. And I think when we were doing maybe the, one of our post games, whatever, we talked about how, doesn't it feel like our society isn't changing at all? Like everything feels like we're just kind of repeating and cycling out and everything feels so tenuous. He talks about that in a book from 1984. So like he kind of pegs a lot of what's still going on in our society in this book. Um, There's just so much stuff that I'm excited to do. Um, So yeah, it's, it's going to be really, really fun. Oh, and one other thing, if you don't mind um, is, uh, for folks who are interested, uh, I am involved with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, where Marxist-Leninist tendency here in the States and around the world. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about the PSL, um, we do really great. I think we do a lot of really great stuff in terms of protests, political action, and political education. Um, so you can check us out at pslweb.org. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much, Justin. Thank you, Corey. I really appreciate it. All right, that's all, folks. Thanks for watching and or listening. Uh, Remember to share this show with your friends and on the social media site that you use the most. I want to say thank you again to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated, and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects when I'm not at work so that I don't have to work as many gig hours. Uh, If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app of choice or one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then you can check out the show notes or check my link tree. That's linktr.com.
bit.ly slash skeptical You can find all my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other shows, which include Skeptarchy, which is a panel show I do with some very smart people, uh, For Many People's Strength, which is a show about Saskatchewan politics, and a new project I'm involved in that's called the Atheist Humanist Leftist Revolutionaries with my friend Damien Marie at Hope. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is at, is the Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. Or you can send me a friend request, which is uh, Facebook.com/CJBrainstorm. I accept most friend requests. You can also email me at Mind of a Skeptical Leftist at gmail.com. And if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which you can find on my link tree. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and let's just all try to be kind to other leftists and to all people, and even if we think they're wrong. Uh, the battle that we are fighting is an uphill one and has many obstacles, and we will need all the comments we can get. Ah!